Well, you all know, if you have attended here long, what a sports nut I am. That it's hard for me to go through a sermon without referencing some kind of sports ball or, or something like that. And so this morning, my mind is drawn to Steve Lyons. He, he was a guy who played during the time that I actually was sort of into baseball, in the 80s and into the early 90s. And there's many things he might be known for. He's a color commentator now, maybe a little too much color sometimes. Um, but during his career, you might have known this guy for being such a great utility player. He played every single position for the White Sox. He might be known for the fact that he would always dive and slide headfirst into first base. He might be known for the fact that all the fans loved him because if you caught a foul ball, he would run up and high-five you, which is such a nice thing to do. But he's not known for any of those things. He's known instead for one, one thing that happened on one day, June 16, 1990, when he went running to first base and slid headfirst and stood up, and the first baseman thought he tagged him out, and he got into an argument with the umpire. And while they argued, for some reason, Steve blanked on where he was and realized he had all sorts of dirt in his pants from sliding and opened them up and started getting the dirt off of his shirt tails and off of, and then all of a sudden seems to realize what he's done and does his pants and 15,000 people and countless more watching at home and suddenly that's all the guy's known for late night comedians nicknames the whole thing and to this day he thinks it's funny he's a good sport but that's what comes up not all the games he played and all the years he put in and all the time on the road in the minor leagues working his way up think also of Joel Schumacher great uh, director great cinematographer made many many films but also made the worst film of all time, which is 1998's Batman and Robin. I'm not saying in my opinion, I'm saying definitively, the worst. They put nipples on the bat suit. That's never a phrase that's ever been uttered at an Easter service and never will be again, God willing. But he ruined it. He just he botched it. And I remember hearing an interview with him on public radio in 2012 and they were still asking about this. And he said, that was 15 years ago. I've made 11 movies since then. And they said, okay, we'll get to your new movie. Just 19 more questions about Batman and Robin. How did that happen? In the same sort of way, I feel kind of bad for Thomas. Because he's known for this one thing. You know, you say, you, you reference Thomas. People say, who? The Apostle Thomas. Ah, which one is, you know, Thomas the Twin? Thomas called Didymus, T. Diddy, N nothing? <laughs> doubting Thomas, oh, doubting Thomas, why didn't you say so? That's his identity now. He didn't do anything that, I mean, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus once called Peter Satan because he was so off base. And yet, what's Peter called? The rock, right? <laughs> James and John went to Jesus once and, and said, can we please call fire down from heaven and consume this town? And Jesus said, what? And, and yet, they're known, G Peter, James, and John, as the inner circle. John's called the disciple Jesus loved. That's his title. And yet, Thomas, forever and ever, is branded as Doubting Thomas. And I feel bad for him because, yes, he was a bit of a pessimist, but he was a faithful pessimist. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the story of Lazarus. Jesus and his disciples were in Perea, and Jesus said, we're going back to the area of Jerusalem. All the disciples said, bad idea, bad idea, let's not do it. 
And Thomas said, no, I'll go. Let's all go and die with him. You see, that's faithfulness and pessimism sort of coming together. He, he's, he's willing to go, and he recognizes they'll probably all die together, but he's willing to do it anyway. In John 14, that great discourse of, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. We see the heart of Thomas when he says, uh, uh, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way, so how can we also go? Right? Thomas is the kid in your class. He's like, we don't know how to do this yet. Hey, you gotta... But that kid wants to know how to do it. And that kid is paying attention. That's Thomas in the disciple. And, and look at what he did after. When, when this is all over, Jesus ascends into heaven. The disciples go and bring the gospel. Jesus said to the ends of the earth, no one took that more seriously than Thomas. He went into part of Iran, and he went all the way to India and died a martyr there, bringing the gospel, which means that most of the people in our Nepali fellowship, most of the, the uh, Christians who heard the gospel, they can probably trace their spirit, if they were able to, their spiritual lineage back to Thomas, bringing the gospel to that part of the world and out from there. Wow, what a great guy, doubting Thomas. That's what he gets. And to be fair, none of the disciples, none of Jesus' followers, not Peter, not, not Mary Magdalene, none of them believed in the resurrection without seeing the resurrected Christ. So we don't know whether they would have reacted like Thomas did or not. We, we, we don't know. We, we don't know because they were all there. Thomas, however, was not when Jesus appeared to the disciples, to the ten of them. They're in the upper room on that Easter Sunday, that first Resurrection Sunday. The doors are locked because they are scared and they do not know what's going on. Thomas isn't there. Why not? We're not told. I assume because of kind of the grim outlook he had, he is one of these people who just didn't want to be around people. You know, some people grieve. They just draw together and grieve together. Some people just want to be alone and that's okay. So maybe that was Thomas. He just wanted to be by himself. We, we're not told for certain, but he wasn't there. Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. Now, you've got to realize that this is probably Jesus speaking Aramaic. Shalom, right? That's the standard greeting. It's kind of like hi. And yet he says it here. And then in the next passage, when Thomas is present, he says it twice. And you've got to wonder why. I mean, John is selective. He tells us at the end of this passage that if he were to write down everything Jesus taught and did, all the books in the world would not contain the information. So he selects very carefully seven major miracles. And yet, he, when he's writing this pivotal climax scene of Jesus appearing to his disciples, Jesus appeared and said, hi. Two verses later. So again, he's like, hi. And they said, hi. And he said, how you doing? They're like, better now that we saw you. Is that what's going on here? Or is there something deeper? The word shalom or peace, peace be with you, this standard greeting, it finds its meaning here in Jesus. Because Jesus had promised right before he was put to death that he was bringing them peace. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Then he shows up and he's saying, peace, peace be with you, not just high, peace be with you, and shows them his wounds, which we spent so much talking about on Good Friday. The, the wounds, the holes in his hands and in his feet and in his side, and says, see, I bring you peace. Peace with God. I have brought you peace for your souls. 
That happened. And Thomas missed it. Can you imagine? I used to work for Family Christian Stores, now defunct national chain, and I worked in the, the main office, the corporate office, in computers, on a little corner with, with all the other nerds and cubicles, and nothing interesting ever happened. It was the same people calling about the same problems and yelling at us in the same way. And one day, I had the day off, and I returned the next day, and there was a CD on my keyboard of my favorite artist, John Rubin. And it was signed to Zach. I said, where'd this come from? Somebody messing with me? They said, oh no, John Rubin was here yesterday. And that was not uncommon. People would come. They wanted us to sell their CDs. But they would just go meet with the bigwigs and then leave. This guy went around and talked to everybody. And he got to my desk and said, oh, hey, does this guy like hip-hop music? And they said, yeah, I guess he does. He, he's a, he's a, a dorky white seminarian, but he does. And I, okay, and he, and he, what's his name? And he wrote, he wrote my name and he left it there. And I said, ha, how did that happen? The one day I'm not there and my favorite guy, what? Nothing exciting ever happens and then... Imagine what it's like when the risen Lord, the one day you weren't there. I mean, Thomas showed up faithfully every day for three and a half years, and the one day he's not there. I would be annoyed. And I wonder if that maybe doesn't undergird a little bit of his response. He's so annoyed. Oh, yeah, I'm great. glad you had this wonderful experience. I won't believe it. Not based on your experience. I have to have my own. And it, it can't just be seeing. I've got to put my fingers in the holes where the nails were and my hand in his side. And he gets that chance. The King James says eight days later. Uh, the ESV says the eighth day. I think the NIV here actually gets the, the sense of it saying one week later. You know there was a different way of counting days in that culture. And if you say the eighth day, you count the first day too. The eighth day is the next Sunday. One week after Easter Sunday, that first Easter. One week. Why didn't they just say one week in the text? Because eight has a very significant meaning. And you go, oh, here goes Pastor Zach with the numbers again. Listen, seven is the number of completion, right? Eight, then, in the scriptures, is the number of a new beginning. Rebirth, resurrection, new creation. So we have the Jubilee cycle where there's seven sevens, and then after that comes the eighth, the ultimate eighth. And it's a restart for everyone, debts forgiven, slaves set free, new start. This is why in the New Testament, our day of worship, the Christian Sabbath, is not on the, the, the last day of the week. It's not even so much on the first day of the week. It's more like it's on the eighth day. The day of restart, rebirth, new wineskins for new wine. On that eighth day, again, they're up in the upper room. Again, the doors are locked. Again, Jesus appears in their midst. And when you see this, don't fall into the old heresy of docetism. You know, docetism. Yeah, that's when you believe that Jesus didn't really, in the resurrection, have a material body. That he was kind of walking through walls and he was sort of a phantom or a ghost. That's what the disciples thought at first. Jesus went out of his way to say, I am flesh and bone. My body has risen again. And here I stand. In fact, in the next chapter, he says, Anybody got anything to eat? And they give him some broiled fish, and he eats it to show he is not a ghost or a spirit. He is flesh and bone. Well, how is it then that he's suddenly amongst them? Maybe, miraculously, the door unlocked and opened. 
Maybe God just caused him to change locations in, in him being God in the flesh. It's not much of a problem. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, we see Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and they're on the road, and, and he's sharing the gospel, and as soon as he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, God catches him up and away to, Dave? Azotus! Never forget Azotus. And so God can do these things. But remember, Jesus is flesh and blood here. He is the man who walked with them. They recognize him when he is standing in their midst. I think the reason we're told about the doors being locked is not because he passed through the walls, but because it's a week now that they've been dealing with and processing this information and having seen Jesus, and still they're hiding when the door's locked. And maybe it's a picture for us of Thomas and the, the state of Thomas's heart. The door's locked. He's closed off to the idea that Jesus is truly risen again, and yet here Jesus is. It's almost a replay of the first visitation, except Jesus caters to this man who was missing, Thomas. Thomas the twin. And, and Jesus didn't have to. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to prove himself to one of these disciples. And yet he does because he is a loving God. Because he condescends. And as annoying as it is when your friends condescend to you, it is wonderful when God condescends. That means simply con with, descend, come down. He, comes, he came down to walk amongst us. That's what Jesus' incarnation is about. And then he comes down even further when we're feeling low or we're doubting or we're angry with him. He comes down to where we are and is with us. God with us. And he comes down to where Thomas is. And he says to him, look, my hands, my feet, my sides. Put your finger here. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Stop doubting and believe. He knows it's a, a grave situation in Thomas's heart because he's spoken so emphatically that it's clear he has no expectation that he is going to have his conditions met and no intention of actually believing. And what a kind thing he does. And do you think he's done any less for each of us? If you have seen Jesus, if you have come to faith, if you have encountered him, it's, it's not because you went up, it's because he came down to where you are and washed you in his blood. Jesus does rebuke him, but it's a mild rebuke. Put your finger here. Do not disbelieve, but believe. It's a mild rebuke, and it's because this is not just doubt. This has crossed over into hard-hearted unbelief. And in, everyone wants a little Greek lesson on Easter, I know. So when you read the NIV, it says, stop doubting and believe. But that's not the best translation here. First of all, there's a word for to doubt. And that's not used in this passage at all. I mean, it's not a bad translation, but we can get a little more accurate. Actually, it's adjectives here. There's the word pistos, which is an adjective that means believing. And then there's the opposite, apistos. You know, you put an A at the beginning, like atypical, atheist, whatever, and it flips it around. He says, don't be unbelieving, a-believing, but be believing. Here's your two options. Stop living in unbelief. Instead, live in belief, because while doubt is not a sin, unbelief is. And Jesus sees him moving quickly, sliding into that pit. I think there's much for the church to learn in this story, where we live in a, a situation where 
even church leaders and pastors and famous uh, authors and gurus are, are, are presenting doubt as if it's the new sacrament of the church. The more you doubt, the more you admit the doubt, the more authentic you look, the more people want to follow you. We get to the point where the most popular Christian teachers someday are going to be those who say, yeah, I barely believe in God. Whoa, yeah, follow him. Jesus says, stop with the unbelief. Believe. Doubt can be useful. Doubt can be a tool. It can be a, a path that, that brings you from a shallow or, or immature or vicarious faith into a robust and personal faith. Especially those raised in the church. They never know anything but being taught the gospel of Christianity. And then they, they get older. They go to college. They meet people who aren't Christian. Those who are unreligious. Those who are Muslim or some other religion. And they start going, huh. I, wonder, is, I just believe that because I was always taught that. And they begin to struggle with and, and wrestle with some of these things. And going through that doubt then builds their faith when they come out the other side. Or it can dash it to pieces. We see many people who, who began, even with a rather hard heart, people like Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel, setting out to write a book disproving Jesus and Christianity and the resurrection and wind up finding the evidence is overwhelming and becoming Christians. Or going back all the way to the 30s, uh, Frank Morrison, who wrote Who Moved the Stone? And T.S. Eliot saw the manuscript and said, this is amazing. He started giving it to everybody, G.K. Chesterton and everybody, and it helped so many people see the truth of the gospel. But Thomas, Thomas isn't moving through a season. He's not dealing with it. He's entrenched himself in it. He's comfortable with the doubt that's becoming quickly unbelief. It's not a season, but a lifestyle, and Jesus will break him out of that. And notice that Thomas never does the thing that he insisted he had to do. Jesus says, yes, here's my scars. You can touch them. You can touch my side. And what does Thomas do? Down on his knees, down on his face, making this amazing confession, my Lord and my God. I've known so many people who say, when I get to heaven, when I die, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say to God, how dare you? You have some explaining to do. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are going to fall on your knees. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and thankfully, Thomas does this while he is yet living. And he doesn't just say, my Lord. He doesn't just call him Lord. They've been calling him Lord all along. Master, Lord. Now, now he calls him God, sovereign, creator. And this bookends the Gospel of John, which we've been studying in church. Because it starts with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're told right off the bat, this is, this is who you're dealing with. It takes the disciples until all the way at the end, right before the epilogue, for someone to say, you're God, my Lord, and my God. You see, he has this brick wall of doubt that he's building, but when Jesus breaks through it, his faith is strong, and Jesus accepts his praise. That's how we know he believed himself to be God, he who had conquered death. Later in the book of Acts, we'll see uh, uh, Paul and Silas on the island of Malta, and there will be those who will worship them. They'll think they're gods. And they're like, don't, no, no, you're going to get us in trouble. Stop trying to worship us. Later yet, in the book of Revelation, there's an angel in, in the, the heavens when, when John is caught up into the heavens, and John falls down before him, and he says, get up, stop that. I'm just a, I'm just a creature like you. But Jesus accepts worship. Some have wondered if maybe Thomas is overshooting with his response. He sees Jesus and immediately says, oh, you're God. 
I mean, there's so many things he could have said. He could have said, oops. He could have said, wow. He could have said, oh, no, I look bad. But he said, my Lord and my God. Why? I think it's because Jesus waited till the eighth day. Jesus gave him a week to let it simmer. And God does this with us often. If you're in your doubt, you're in a dark place, you're in a a place where you're wrestling with things, he will let you wrestle with it for a while so that when you encounter him, you're ready. During that week, undoubtedly, he was thinking back to things Jesus had said. And, And it's almost comical because he's remembering when Jesus said, when I get to Jerusalem, I'll be rejected and killed and on the third day rise again. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. He remembers that Jesus said things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. He is claiming to be God in the flesh. And the last piece of the puzzle is seeing him, seeing his wounds, seeing him alive. And that causes him to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus answers him by saying, you believe because you have seen. It's okay. He saw, he believed. But then he leaves us with the last of his beatitudes. A beatitude is just a blessed are statement. Blessed are those who have not seen and still they believe. Blessed are you if you have not seen him and still you believe. God delights in it when we have not seen him and still we believe. Peter even goes further with this in 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When Jesus says, yeah, you've seen and believe, but, but blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe, he's not praising an uninformed faith, a blind leap of faith that says, I don't have any real ground for this, but I'm just going to throw myself off the cliff. We know he's not because verses 30 and 31, when John tells us why he wrote, that makes that impossible. He said, I wrote this so that you would read it all, know about it, and believe. In fact, much doubt and unbelief is simply a result of ignorance. And if people were to learn that whatever that professor taught them or that guy on Twitter said or whatever the History Channel uh, was, was showing about Jesus in between ice road truckers and pawn shops or whatever, it's just simply not true. And that can help people to put their faith in Jesus. No, he's not praising a subjective faith. He's praising a satisfied faith. A faith that is satisfied with God's revelation, that doesn't seek after more. Like, oh, this is all right, but. All right, Jesus, hey, call me back. I need another best-selling book. Give me, some more, give me some more stuff, more things. I need more. This isn't enough. I need visions that will show me you're real. I need to, to see you and interact with you. I need signs and miracles and religious experience. Those are all well and good, but we don't need them. And they won't help if we haven't faith. The greatest miracle has already happened. And yet Thomas is saying, I I need more. I don't just need what you guys had where I see. I need more. I need a special thing just for me. That I can put my fingers through the holes in his hands and my hand into the, the wound in his side. I've known many who have demanded a special just for me experience. If God wants me to believe in him, he can come down and tell me himself. And I say, he already came down. And they say, no, 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 no. 
I mean he comes down and pays homage to me specifically because I'm special, because I'm me. And the fact is that even if he were to do that, the hard and unbelieving heart would not believe. Remember when the rich man and Lazarus uh, stories is being told, the rich man dies and he and he's, finds himself in Hades and he says, I want to go warn my brothers what awaits them. And he's told, your brothers have the scriptures. And if they don't believe the scriptures, neither will they believe even if a man is raised from the dead. Blessed are those who have not seen. This blessing is not for those who have some miraculous experience or ethereal knowledge or special revelation. It's for those who have read the scriptures or heard them proclaimed and have believed. And believing have received eternal life. And even if that's you, there are times you might say, yeah, that's all well and good, but I really wish I could just, I I would take the rebuke if I could have that Thomas experience. If I could see him in the flesh and and grab onto him and have him tell me everything will be all right and, and have him answer my questions. If only I could go back in time to when he walked the earth. Think that through, though. As Jesus walked the earth, having set aside his glory, limiting himself to one place at a time, you'd have to get in line behind like 1.5 billion Christians and probably many reporters who'd want to talk to him. And seeing him would likely not have the effect you want because he'd be shorter than you. He wouldn't be impressive. He wasn't that handsome. Scripture tells us there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And saying, oh, he's a guy who walks around and... And, you know, who knows, he might wear his robe a little weird and look a little... And, and you, might, you might find your faith flagging. Jesus tells us in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You have the Holy Spirit indwelling you if you have believed You have access to Him at all times. You can be with Christ through the Spirit. And you are with Him even when you feel like you are with Thomas at a low place, dark and off on your own. And then He finally tells us the purpose of this whole book that He's given us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Not just so you'll know, but that so you'll know and then put faith in what you know, and that in putting faith in Him, you will have life in Him. Thomas experiences this. And I think we need to give credit to the other disciples. When he turns in a way on Jesus and says, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, I think he's still dead, they don't cast him out. They don't write him off. They say, keep meeting with us. Keep meeting with us. He'll come back sometime. And a week later, there he is. You see, they can't change his heart. They can't change his mind. But they can say, come with us. Be with us. Encounter Christ with us. And he will change your heart and your mind. You see, it's not that they were dragging an unwilling man along to church, kicking and screaming the whole way. Rather, he wanted to believe. And maybe that's you. I want to believe in all this stuff, but I just can't. That's okay. That's right where Thomas was as well. In fact, we read in the Scriptures, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
I pray that prayer regularly. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me, like Thomas, to break through any wall of doubt that it would strengthen my faith and that I would, at the end, fall on my knees and say, my Lord and my God. Not just Lord and God, but my Lord, my God. This morning, is He your Lord and your God? If not, let me encourage you that in the midst of fear and doubt, even if the door to your heart is locked and you have said, I will not believe unless dot, 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 and you've got a whole scenario, even with the door locked, Christ has a tendency to appear in our midst, offering us peace. He will come to you as well if you seek Him, saying, peace be with you, showing you His wounds and giving you life everlasting. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Easter morning. We thank You that You are present with us. We thank You that You condescend to come down to where we are and meet us there rather than demanding that we come up to meet you because we never could and we never would. But Lord, you are good and you come to us and you give us life and you show us your wounds and you grant us peace. Lord, if there are those here who are struggling with unbelief, I pray that they would be encouraged by the story of Thomas, that they would recognize that even when they say to themselves, I wish I could believe all this stuff, it sounds nice, but I truly cannot, that, Lord, they would just keep that door a little open. Or, Lord, that they would even pray that you would come in and, and pass by the lock and miraculously appear in the midst of their heart, opening them up to the truth, that the truth may set them free. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, crucified and risen. Amen.